0: Welcome to PCA One On One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series, where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO.
1: I'm really excited today to be interviewing uh, Dave Cavill, the president of the Earthquakes in Major League Soccer. the Dave has a really for such a young guy a really long bio of do, doing a whole bunch of things and I think there's two phrases that come to mind when I think about him one is entrepreneur and the other is innovator um, and I also I think of you as a social entrepreneur in in sports uh, Dave graduated from the. Uh, Stanford Graduate School of Business with an MBA, and almost immediately started uh, a new league, the Golden Baseball League, from scratch, which included raising the money for that, and I want to come back and talk with you about that later. And um, I don't know, Dave, if you know Bill Veck, uh, who was an innovator in baseball. He owned the White Sox Long time in wrote oh, incredible no, book. Oh no, I'm very them. familiar. You the Indians in for
0: a while too. So yes, I am familiar with them. Yeah,
1: right. You're, and you're from Cleveland. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think of of you and him together in terms of just the, all the innovations you're involved with. One of the things after the the, the Golden Baseball League, um, you know, you you created this tradition of playing a, a Quakes match at Stanford Stadium, and and uh, got a record crowd of fifty thousand dollars against the Galaxy uh, recently. Um, in terms of the corporate partnership revenue that you've gotten with the, the earthquakes, it's uh, the best in the in Major League Soccer. Um, uh, little known, Dave also was the president of the Yuma Scorpions, the Long mm-hmm. Beach Armada, and the Chico Outlaws. <laughs> um, and my son actually wrote a book uh, called Working in the Shadows when he, he spent uh, – to, uh, to two months down in Yuma uh, cutting lettuce for this book. So uh, <laughs> I'm a familiar with Yuma. Very hot in the summer there.
0: Very uh, hot. 20 degrees,
1: yes. Oh, yeah. Dave also worked for the Office of Management and Budget and is now a lecturer at the uh, Stanford Business School. Um, Wrote a book called The Summer that Saved Baseball about his uh, experience touring all 30 Major League Baseball stadiums in the summer of 1998. And uh, Dave, as a native of Cleveland, I think you know Mark Shapiro, the president of the Indians, who is the chair of PCA Cleveland now. And then finally, uh, Dave is on the National Advisory Board for Positive Alliance. So, Dave, it's just a real real um, thrill to be able to talk to you on this podcast.
0: Oh, it's so great to uh, have an opportunity, and thanks so much for having me.
1: So I want to start by talking about fear of failure and how you don't seem to have that gene in you.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I think I, I, I tend to agree with that. You know, I think there's been a lot of, um, you know, risks or Um, areas that I've, uh, new ventures and endeavors that I've gone into over my career that have been pretty risky and that some have failed and have had, you know, failures along the way. And I think what I've always found is that those are opportunities to learn and opportunities to try new things. And, you know, the the type of culture that I've tried to create here with the Earthquakes and before with the Golden League was around I'd rather have people who would go three for ten <clears throat> than one for one. So even if that means you failed seven times, it means that you're trying new things and you know that, hey, I'm willing to take a little bit of a chance, especially when you're a younger, nimbler organization, um, like a, you know, startup baseball league or Major League Soccer, which isn't as established as the NFL or Major League Baseball. And so I think that life view and perspective is especially well-suited to a lot of the endeavors that I've been a part of. And that's one reason I like those types of challenges and projects.
1: Where did the idea of the Golden Baseball League, and maybe you can uh, describe that because I think many of the people who will listen to this
0: podcast don't know about the, the the Golden League. Well, you know, it actually started when I was back in Cleveland, Ohio, um, just for one of the you know Christmas holidays to go back to visit my folks. And I saw that they – we're putting a new minor league baseball team in the suburbs of Cleveland and Eastlake, which was a weird thing because it's like it was in a, an area close to a major league club. And when I saw that, I said, you know what, it seems like that might be an opportunity in California. California, it's got, like, tons of suburbs, the Bay Area, Los Angeles. And then I thought of other cities like, like Phoenix and things like that. And I looked into the opportunity and said, hey, would it be possible to start – Um, just one team in the suburbs of, you know, the Bay Area. You know, could that be in, you know, Pleasanton, Livermore, the North Bay, whatever. And when looking at that, I realized that there was very few minor league baseball teams on the West Coast. And I said, you know what, I think there's an opportunity here to not start just even one team, but a whole league of teams. And so I set out in my second year of business school to write an entire business plan to get that off the ground. Everyone thought we were crazy to do it because it was so challenging just to start one team, let alone, uh, you know, a whole league of teams. But we wrote the business plan and, you know, raised the money and got it off the ground in, you know, there were a lot of odds against us, but we were able to put the pieces together and put a really good plan, give ourselves time, Jim, to actually execute that plan. And by 2005, when we launched the league with a game down in in, uh, Arizona, you know, we had 8,000 fans at the first game, a sellout. We had an all Japanese traveling team playing against an American team. We created all this hoopla. Ricky Henderson was playing in the league. And so we were able to launch the league with such fanfare and pomp and circumstance and excitement that people wanted to be connected to it. And so that journey to that point, I mean, that was only part of the journey. Obviously we still had ran the league for eight years and we had ups and downs, but we were always growing. We were always coming up with new innovative ideas to get people into the stadium, kind of Bill Vex style to whatever it takes to really think of yourself as a promoter. And I think people were attracted to that because that was something that um, you didn't always see. You know, I think a lot of sports has become so corporate, it's kind of lost its soul. And uh, the the Golden League and then I think also what I've been able to do with the earthquakes kind of harkens back to that early era era of sports. And I think it's something that people are looking for.
1: So I, I just spent uh in late November, December I spent ten days in Japan. I was invited to to speak about positive coaching there and and the coaching style uh there is uh not just negative a lot of times, it's actually physically uh punishing. You know, people if players yeah, abusive don't even. Yeah, do absolutely, well they actually you know. get hit. <laughs> um, so I'm really interested in the Japanese team, which I believe always played away games. They didn't have a home field, right? It where that idea came from.
0: Yeah, well, it started as, you know, almost like making lemonade with lemons because we had a team in Mexico, in Tijuana, but the stadium deal for that team fell through. The stadium was actually nationalized, and so we couldn't play at the stadium. And so we went from seven, eight to seven teams. And instead of just like, you know, throwing like a regular U.S. team or finding another location, we said, hey, how do we think creatively about? this situation, we're kind of been thrown a curveball. And we said, what about the opportunity to have an all-traveling team? And what if we themed it, like an old barnstorming team, and we thought about, you know, the old, like, U.S. teams, like with Babe Ruth that went and visited Japan. What if we flipped it around and said we could have an all-Japanese traveling team? And so that was the idea, and we established the Samurai Bears, and we got legendary former Yomuri Giants great Warren Cromarty, who is an American, actually from South Florida, um, who, who played in Japan, was like a hero there, and it got him to manage the team. And he was the skipper, and he assembled all the players, and we had all these tryouts over in Osaka and Kobe and Tokyo, and put this team together that just kind of became a phenomenon. You know, it traveled all around. It, it, people kind of, I think, sometimes felt bad for it because it had no home. So whenever it went on the road, whether it was to Chico or Yuma or Surprise or up to Canada, it, it was kind of beloved. It had its own kind of like traveling fan base. Um, and the team was such an interesting team to see play because they played kind of that small ball style. And they actually had a pretty good season for an all-traveling team and competed um, you know, in that first season for the league. And Warren was a very colorful, exciting figure. And we actually then documented the entire experience, and we produced a movie called The Season of the Samurai – which was rewarded both with honors at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival and the Film Festival in Montreal. And so we were able to create this situation where we had lost a team, created a new team that created all this excitement and and energy. Even it it morphed its way into a movie, which is kind of unbelievable, and became one of the signature facets of our first season, Jim. I would love to see that movie. Is it available? Yes, I could send like you a Netflix DVD, yeah, or yes. Amazon or yeah, anything. no, uh I don't know. It might be streaming. I can look, but it's definitely available like MLB Network shows it pretty often and uh I have a DVD as well. And um it it ended up really being a I mean it was a, it's a funny story of these kind of like fish out of water kind of story of all these kids. They're very sure. young, 19, 20 years old coming to the United States, traveling to all these crazy minor league cities. There's a great scene when Warren is so mad because the bus breaks down, going from Yuma to Chico, and they're, like, on the I-5 somewhere. And then he's sitting there, like, screaming at the top of his lungs, you know, like, I am a samurai. I mean, it's it's just, like, straight out of Hollywood. This thing really just, you know, it actually played itself. You know, you just had to you had to follow it, so...
1: You know um when I was in Kyoto I spoke uh, I I did several talks uh including some in in uh in Tokyo, where it was mm-hmm. mostly adults, but in, in Kyoto at the university, I spoke to mostly athletes, <clears throat> and I really got a sense for how much pressure there is on uh, on sports in, in Japan. Maybe even more than the United States. And <clears throat> afterwards, there were a whole bunch of kids that wanted to talk to me. And, and this one, one young woman came up, and she was just really tightly wound, and um, I had this sense that she was really, really hard on herself. And so I wrote you know, down, yeah. I had a translator right next to me, and I wrote down this statement um, that um, gentleness with self is the gateway to courage, which I had heard before, and I just love it. It's like if you're beating yourself up all the time, you're not going to be willing to take chances. Yeah. <clears throat> and I wrote that down, and the translator translated this woman, she started crying. I mean, I just had this oh feeling my like, gosh. Wow. Um so, it's, it's, I mean, sports is really, really important in Japan. And I just think that was a fabulous idea to get that. Uh, what, the name of the team was the Samurai? Samurai Bears.
0: And um, they traveled bears, all around. Right. We yeah, sold yeah. tons. Yeah, Bears. Yeah, we sold a bunch of merchandise. And it was just, you know, really an amazing story. And then a couple of years later, we had another kind of story in the, in the Golden League related uh, to Japan is when we brought over um, – a pitcher uh, a female pitcher that actually ari yoshida, who actually played in the league, so like she was the first um really female player to play in like a an established professional American league since the negro leagues, and the amazing story was wow. that she came and she she pitched for um, the outlaws in Chico. And in her first game, this is the best thing. So she, I'm up there, like, because you're so nervous. Like, how is she going to do? And this was, like, a huge media circus, right? All these, like, ESPN and TMZ and all these people covering it. And she gets up there, and then, of course, she walks the bases loaded in the first inning because she's so nervous. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to go so bad. But then she got a strikeout and a double play, and she was out of the inning. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's, like, going great. And then the bottom of the inning comes up because they were at home, and – the outlaws were really good that year, so so she, and and we had no designated hitter, so she actually had an opportunity to hit. So she gets up there and she's actually, you know, they were already up like three or four to three nothing, four nothing. The outlaws. She gets up to hit and she gets a single to right field, Jim. And it was mm. unbelievable. All five thousand people are going crazy, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, they signed her for her bat." We had no idea, and it was just. This unbelievable <laughs> moment—you could see her on first base with this huge smile on her face—and it was like the, just one of the great moments. Um, and so many people, so, so many girls had come I, up. Yeah, it's a great I'm story. I'm going to take back great what story. I said
1: earlier about when I compared you to Bill Vec and I said, yeah, you know, you hadn't done anything like he had Eddie Goodell come to bat. But this is this is your um, Eddie Goodell moment
0: with uh, it, it, in many ways That's it fantastic. is Ari Absolutely, absolutely. But it was it was great when. You know, she had success in the Golden League, and she played for us for for a season. And so many girls would email, call, write letters, and say, hey, you know, I'm whatever, 11 years old, and I play in a Little League team. And it's so great to see a girl playing in a professional league. I mean, it had a, such a positive impact on so many people um, that it, it really, it, it meant a lot to me. And as someone who has two daughters who, you know, saw it up close, it, it was just a great moment for sport, and uh, it was something I was really proud to be a part of
1: yeah cool. so let's shift to soccer because that's what you've been doing uh for for some time now very successfully um, what do you think um i mean soccer has grown grown like crazy and there are more ki- i think there are more kids playing soccer than any other sport in this country um, the but it but m l s hasn't broken through the way major league baseball or n b a or uh, n f l have I'll talk a little bit about What's different about soccer in terms of at the professional level? We'll talk, we'll talk about the the college, high school, and youth level in a bit, but just from the professional standpoint, how is it different?
0: Well, I think the biggest challenge is that the other sports, baseball, NFL, basketball, the whole thing, you know, it's the highest level of that sport in the world. And I think in the United States, people want to watch the best. You know, when they watch the NFL, there's no other place in the world you're going to watch American football at that level. And the thing about soccer or association football is that really the best teams historically have been in Europe, have been in England, have been for a long time in Italy or, or or Spain. And, you know, there's a lot of people, a huge subset of the soccer fans in the United States that are waking up on Saturday morning and watching the EPL or watching Serie A and all these other leagues across the world. And I think one thing that MLS has to do, and we've, we've, we're getting better is we need to compete more with those leagues for the top talent because I think once we're closer, and you know maybe we're not all the way there, but we're closer, people will, will gravitate maybe more the casual fans who just want to watch the highest level of the sport towards MLS as opposed to watching the premiership and things like that. And we're well on our way. You know, The new media deal, the fact that most of the teams in our league, including us, now have our own stadiums are really bringing all sorts of new revenue opportunities. It means we can invest in our product, enhance the quality of what we're doing, um, and I think over time we will continue to challenge those other leagues um, for supremacy in terms of soccer around the world.
1: We've been uh, spending a lot of time. Positive coaching has been spending a lot of time in both Seattle and Portland in terms of expanding to create a a new chapter there. And it became, you know, clear the Sounders in Seattle and the Timbers in Portland. I mean, they they're just off the charts in terms of fans there. Uh, They're a little bit smaller than Silicon Valley. Uh Um, They don't have quite as many professional teams. do, do, you, do you feel like you can compete with, with uh, the Sounders and the Timbers in terms
0: of, especially when you get the new stadium? Oh, we think in we're well on our way. You know, in terms of, like, our season tickets, you know, Seattle's kind of an outlier in our league because they play in an in American football stadium. But we're the only other team other than them that can have regular season MLS games at Levi Stadium, at Stanford Stadium, and put in 40 to 50,000 fans. And I think that shows, Jim, how powerful – Uh, the fan base and, and interest in soccer is in the Bay Area. And there's great history to support that. We've had the World Cup here, men's and women's. We've had teams all the way back to the NASL. The Earthquakes were started in 1974 originally. Guys like George Best, who played for Manchester United, played here. You have all this great history. You have now more modern history. You have Chris Wondolowski, obviously a great hometown local kid, playing for the national team, playing for the Quakes. And so this area, I think, is a hotbed. I think one of the challenges, we've just never really had the right venue or home to to support it. You know, these other places have had like a home stadium, and that's why I think Avaya Stadium that we just built, this new $100 million stadium, can really anchor – you know, the earthquakes and professional soccer in this region and really elevate our stature so we're considered on par with all the other pro sports teams. Because it is crowded. There's a lot of pro sports teams in the Bay Area. But I think with the younger fans that we see, the demographics um, where a lot of the younger fans are really predisposed towards soccer, we can put ourselves right up there with not only Portland and Seattle in our league, but right up there with, you know, the 49ers and the Giants and all these other um, you know, sporting teams in the Bay Area that have, you know, traditionally been kind of the top teams.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, uh, speaking of innovation, I know at the the new stadium, uh, I believe it's the only field level suites of any American uh, professional team. Um, t- talk a little bit about the, uh, your You're thinking about the innovation of in, in building a stadium.
0: Well, there was a lot that went into that, Jim, to create as fan friendly a stadium and to really enhance the experience for the spectators and the fans. Because, you know, I think a lot of times these new stadiums are like kind of like going to a club or something like that, and there just happens to be a field connected to it. We we said, hey, we want to have everything focused on the experience of interacting and and consuming the the match and the energy and excitement that comes with that. And so we said, hey, instead of putting you way far away from the field – We're going to take kind of borrow this out of the NBA with the court seats and say, hey, let's put the premium right on the action. So, like, you can be down there and the ball can come and actually jump into your suite or under your seat and you have to look alive and follow the action. Like, that's such an unusual and, and different experience for fans. And you see the athleticism of the soccer players, too, how fast they're running, their cuts, the ability to trap the ball, to put a ball across and cross the field. You know, all these things, you know, when you're that close, it really gets it gets magnified. And so we laid out the whole stadium that way. And that was something that our architects had not seen. It was something that you don't see really in any other pro um, soccer venues in North America, or even in in Europe, for that matter. Um, And I think it's going to create a a really unique and powerful experience for our fans. And I think a lot of people will travel into Avaya Stadium to see that uh, because it is so unique.
1: You also are doing some... In terms of uh, youth soccer, community soccer fields, Mm -hmm. um, you're doing some work with uh, creating lighting fields, uh, sorry, lighted fields so uh, you can extend the the practice times and game times. Talk a little bit about what you're doing there and why that's uh, an integral part of the earthquakes.
0: Well, I mean, a huge part of what we do is our academy and our regional development schools, and, you know, we have thousands of kids connected to our academy program this really allows them, and it's a fully scholarship program, so they don't need to pay. So it's, it's for all kids at any income level to come and really experience the highest possible level of soccer um, instruction, which I think in the U.S. it's been a challenge because I think in youth sports there's been so much money And it had been a for-profit entity, and you have a lot of people who really didn't know how to be a coach. They didn't understand things like positive coaching. They didn't understand how to develop these players for a long period of time. It was like win, win, win. And so we're trying to bring that through our academy throughout the Bay Area. Having the actual field is a critical part of that because there's really a dearth of fields in the area. So we work with the city of San Jose, and right next to our stadium as part of our complex, we have four community soccer fields, lighted fields, turf, going in with a clubhouse that can support our academy, uh, which will be completed this year. We could not be more excited about that. And and to have those kids out there, you know, girls and boys, playing and looking up at Avaya Stadium, like playing in the shadow of it, that's pretty inspiring for them and I think it's just a great way to set up the youth program uh, here in San Jose.
1: You know, the the academy system is controversial. Um, Mm -hmm. Taking the best you know the best several thousand. It's just for boys now, but it, it, you could see it uh, coming for girls as well. Mm-hmm. The the top kids and part of being part of the academy is you get fantastic, you know, technical and and training and coaching. Uh, but then you can't play on your high school team. You can't play on club teams. Yeah. And and um, I've heard the argument both ways. Why do you think it's a good way to go for for soccer in the United
0: States? Well, I think it's two prong. I think one. It's better for the actual players because they become better soccer players. You know, the the level of instruction that we have, we have, you know, Chris Leach, who's the, our technical director, who used to play for the Earthquakes, before that played for the Red Bull, very successful player in the United States. He run, he's the technical director of our academy. I have spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, dollars sending him to Europe, training with the French Federation, going to Real Madrid, learning how these other countries and other club teams develop talent, especially at a very young age, and it's not about winning. It's about developing the skills to be successful and actually getting a maturity as a player to understand how to play on a team. There's, there's far more to it than just like, okay, let's get the best you know 8 or 10 or 12, 11 kids and beat the opponent's 8 nothing and crush them. You know, that's not what we're really trying to do. We're trying to make sure these kids who are 10 or 11 years old can trap the ball, can cross the ball, can do all like the key skills that really make you a great player. So I think it's better for the individual players that way. And then I think the other thing, is for soccer in America and for the U.S. men's national team to really compete at the World Cup level and to win a World Cup, we need to develop American soccer players who are at the highest possible level. We have 310 million people who live here in the United States. We are not turning out enough players at the high level. And the reason for that is that we're not actually – you know at a young age schooling these kids to play at the right level we're not doing the, the we are not learning from a lot of these other countries and so i think our academy programs are a way to accelerate that and actually put us at the forefront of world soccer and i think at some point if we can compete more effectively for a world cup it's going to elevate not only our country but also all the club teams like the earthquakes
1: you know um when you when you describe it the way you just described it which is you know very eloquent um it it makes you wonder you know is is the the focus on on developing skills as opposed to you know and getting better as a player um rather than focusing on having a winning season uh which may mean that you you end up trying to get the best players on your team and whether they they learn much or or whatever um uh, I, I always, when I when I give talks, I often ask people, what's the easiest way to, to win a game? And people say, well, cheating or whatever. But the easiest way to win a game is to play against weaker teams. Um, yep. And so it seems like it would be great if the the academy philosophy of, of giving the best technical skill and maybe not worrying so much about winning this particular game uh, would filter down.
0: Oh, I, I would love if that would happen. I think it's hard because I think in the U.S., it's ingrained in us to want to win. And I think people want to have their kid on the winning team and they want, they think that that's going to help them get into college or develop as a person or play in MLS or whatever. And I think a lot of times it's kind of a, you know, a blind alley. And I think you end up not developing leaders and the character you need for these young uh, athletes uh, that's conducive to becoming, like, not only a great athlete, but also, like, you know, a well-adjusted and and contributing member of society. So I think there's a lot of negativity that can come out of it if you're not kind of set up correctly. And I think a lot of times the incentives are, are misaligned where, you know, if a lot of families want their kids to play on these super teams because they want their kids to be a winner. Uh, but a lot of times the type of coaching and the experience they get is not a positive one. We have a
1: a model we call the triple impact competitor. Uh, A triple impact competitor is someone who makes his teammates, I mean he makes himself better, he makes her teammates better, and makes the game better. Um, Thinking about those three levels, making yourself better, your teammates better, and the game better by the way you compete, who who do you think of in terms of uh, U.S. soccer at the MLS level or wherever who really seems to be an embodiment of that triple impact competitor?
0: You mean an individual player, or kind of an organization, Jim?
1: Well, I was thinking of individuals um, who work really hard to be the best they can be, but they make their, the, the the people around them better, and then they're
0: they're great role models. They make the game better. Well, Anybody I, mean, I think, to think I Chris Wondolowski immediately is someone who, um, you know, really I think his story is so compelling because he was so overlooked so many times in his career. He didn't even go to a big college. He went to Chico State. He was drafted, you know, 46th, you know, in the third round or whatever, in MLS draft. And he just always kept fighting, you know, at every single level. And and at, at all those times, he exemplified, you know, integrity. He was a great teammate. It wasn't about him. It was about the team. Um, he always gave back in terms of doing community events, clinics, giving back to hit the community where he's from, you know, um, Danville, De La Salle, high school where he went. And then he became a superstar, and he had a breakout season in twenty ten and by twenty twelve had set the league record with twenty seven goals and and The thing about that was so amazing is he didn't change as a person; he stayed true to his values, and maybe because he had worked so hard to get there he he was so grounded. But when you would hang out with him or talk to him, he would just be a regular person you know you would you wouldn't get the sense that he felt like he was bigger than the team or the game or or anything. And that's just a breath of fresh air, Jim, because, you, you know, in so many times these days, especially with the media attention and everything, um, these players, you know, take on a life that's, that's bigger than they really should should deserve. And I think it's frustrating for to see the kids kind of look up to some of those people as role models. And so Wando has just been incredible. And, and you know, we'll have a, a game here when we play to Buckshaw or Stanford or Levi Stadium. And it's always funny, you're in the locker room after the game. I go down there, I see the coach, I see the players, congratulate the team, or you know, if it's a tough loss, kind of you know, um, console everyone together. And Wanda's always the last one there because he's out on the pitch interacting with the fans and signing autographs, hundreds and hundreds of autographs after every game. Some games it'll be an hour, an hour and 20 minutes after the game is over until he gets back into the locker room. What an amazing thing for him to do that and to give back. Think about all those kids who got those signatures or interact with them or got a photo with them or a selfie. That is really a selfless thing because he's promoting, like we got back to the original question, you know, it's promoting our club and our team but also the sport and how you should conduct yourself as an athlete. And it's just inspiring to see that.
1: You know, I I, – Pat Conroy, the I'm sorry, Pat Conroy, the author. He wrote My Losing Season and a, a bunch of other books that have been made into into uh, movies. <clears throat> and I went to see him once at, at Kepler's Bookstore in Menlo Park, and uh-huh. the place was packed. Um, this was maybe 10, 15 years ago, and uh-huh. um, he said. He said, uh, "I want everyone here to know that I will stay till the very last person gets a chance to, you know, get an autograph and, and talk to me." And he said, "And everybody just kind of calmed down because you know everybody wanted a signed book and everything." He said, "Right, right. Somebody once told me that um, you need to uh, reinforce people when they come to see you because at a certain point they're going to stop coming." And I think uh, you know, Wando and, and players like that. Recognize that you know it's it's really a privilege to be where you are and to and to be able to pass that on that love of soccer and and you know the signing autographs and interacting with fans it's it's that's really wonderful and I understand it's hard for professional athletes who are in such a spotlight they they have so many demands on their time it's hard for them to do that so when you see someone like him who does that it's just really admirable yeah no doubt. So my last question, then, is I'm very grateful to you for, for being a part of uh, Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board. Um, why why are you involved with PCA?
0: You know, I think it relates to my daughters, you know, who played in a wide variety of different sports. And I had um, one daughter who played um, on a basketball team, and she had a really tough experience. And it was too focused on winning. It was too intense. It was just too much and I saw, you know, the impact of, the, of that on her and how it really took all her energy away from wanting to even play the sport. And that's what inspires me to say, hey, in my position and what I do, you know, we should be pushing to make sure there's no kids who feel that way. Because it's just – it takes away all the good things about sport, Jim. And so that's yeah. that's really what inspires me. And, and I feel that – we are having a positive impact. I mean, that's the exciting thing is like you see the difference it makes in all these different sports across so many different communities and in the Bay Area where there is a lot of competition and it's a rat race sometimes. If there wasn't an organization like PCA, um, I I really feel that, that we would not be in as positive a situation here in our community. Well, Dave,
1: thank you for your support of PCA and uh, I am just it's going to be really fun to to watch your uh, your career. You're just not a very old guy yet and you've done a whole bunch of things. So thank you well, for your uh, dedication. I appreciate to... it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA 1 on 1. Be sure to visit positivecoach.org to download more podcasts.